Welcome to Sweat the Technique, a podcast about how to get better faster. I'm Ryan Hill, the founder and CEO of 23 Kip Schools in New Jersey and Miami. And today I'm talking to Susan Asiambi, the founder and CEO of the Alori Network, which provides leadership and change management coaching to executives and emerging leaders in a variety of companies and nonprofits. Susan started as a teacher in Newark, New Jersey, and subsequently moved on to leadership roles, including Chief Operating and Program Officer and Chief Transformation Officer at Teach for America, which is one of the most important education reform organizations in the country. Susan also sits on a number of boards, including that of the Chicago Children's Museum and is on the President's Council of the Museum of Science and Industry and the Black Chamber of Commerce. Today, we're going to talk about what she has learned from the classroom to the C-suite and how that applies to helping executives and emerging leaders forge the capabilities and relationships needed to accelerate growth and expand outcomes all through an equity lens. Susan, it's great to see you. It's great to see you too, Ryan. We met, what, 15 or 20 years ago when you were a Teach for America teacher in uh, Newark. Yes, right. What, yes, uh, I remember. <laughs> what, what got you into teaching in the first place? I am from the south side of Chicago. And my parents, um, just from an ethos standpoint, from a cultural standpoint, they're Nigerian. And they came to America with the idea of a, a dream that they had for their children. Like, we, there's not a lot that we're going to be able to give you, but the gift of thought is our gift to you because thought can allow you to have the critical thinking to dream for yourself. And so I had the experience of dreaming and having lots of leaders and teachers in a village of support systems that enabled me to see bigger than I could see for myself, bigger than oftentimes was available and accessible to me in my community. And that gave me just a real deep appreciation and love for like the greatness that existed in my community and the fact that every child, every being should have the ability to dream as well. And so that's what brought me to Teach for America when I learned of the work that they do in terms of leadership and proximity to communities and children. And how long were you in the classroom? So I taught for two years um, before joining Teach for America as a teacher coach, um, supporting other new teachers. Um, And then, of course, that spiraled into doing other things like training teachers, training adults. Um, So a lot of things related to learning adult learning, how adults learn, adult behavior, the psychology of leading people, um, which no surprise leads me to the moment that I'm here today in terms of what I do. And and I'm curious what you learned from your time in the classroom that has, what has translated to working with adults and then what hasn't? The two biggest things um, that people who work with our firm probably hear from me a lot, almost to the point of ad nauseum, I'll ask the question to them and I'll say, I have to believe that you believe that it's possible Mm. because we believe in possibility, not probability. Mm -hmm. And that's a big key Uh, with my children. The statistics would have told you all the reasons why they couldn't be. And we just believe in the possibility of every human being and what they're able to offer the world and what they're able to do. Um, And so the idea that like you believe in something that even if everything is telling you differently, it's not that you ignore data, but that you use the data to inform being bold, being innovative um, and having a set of values um, that says something can be different. And so I would say that first thing in terms of like the belief in the human potential is something that I took from the classroom. And I certainly believe when I'm working with my leaders was like, 
I believe that you are here because you bring something beautiful to the world and you have a set of superpowers and gifts. And our job is to help you extract those superpowers and gifts to do something bigger and bolder for yourself and for the organization and the company, um, what you all are trying to do. So I would say that's the first thing. And then the second thing is the power of proximity and relationships. Mm -hmm. Um, I believe in order to attain sustainable results, whether those results are the impact and changing the world, whether those results are, I want to, you know, like profit and purpose combined together, um, that where relationships are productive, where people know how to negotiate competing interests, you will find them able to change the world and able to do both things. And so um, that was no different in the classroom where I was able to be proximate with my kids and get to know them for who they were and what brought them joy and their biggest fears and what we, how we were similar and how we were different um, and how I could leverage their superpowers. Um, that transformed not only our relationship, but what we were able to do together. Um, and you cannot underestimate the power of relationships. And when the, the strength of relationship is not there, how much work it takes to navigate trying to do hard things together. Yeah. On the first of those, I've found that it's a lot easier for a lot of leaders, especially if they have been teachers before, to take the growth mindset with kids and be okay with mm-hmm. them not being where they need to be yet um, and believing yes. they can get somewhere, learn the material or you know become a successful adult eventually. Um, whereas it, it's a lot harder sometimes in my experience for, for adults to take that same outlook toward yes. other adults. Um, have you seen yes. that too in your coaching? Absolutely. Towards other adults and quite honestly, towards ourselves. Yeah, that's very true. You kind of get locked into a certain way of doing things and, and don't think you can change. How, how do you deal with that with the people you coach? Yeah. I mean, part of it is also really exploring. Um, in our firm, we're not just about giving people people tools and actual insights. Like we believe in that, that people need something to go do and try. Mm -hmm. Um, But we are big into like understanding root causality. Like what's behind what's causing you not to think that you can do differently. Mm -hmm. What's the barrier? Oftentimes it's a belief system in terms of if I like ask for help, that suggests that I'm weak. That's a frame. And so we try to help people unlock a frame of what if it's like asking for help is actually a sign of strength. And like exploring that. So that was that's the first thing is that we dig really deeply into root causality mm-hmm. um, because we believe that if we can dig into the root causality, then the actions that come after it will be sustainable versus I do some things for a little bit and then I go back to old habit, which is typically what people do under stress and frustration and tension. Um, so that'd be the first thing. And I would say the second thing um, that we really do to help people there is experimentation. And so sometimes it's really just saying like, well, let's try it out. We're going to try this technique or we're going to try this way of operating for a really short amount of time and we're going to record what happens. And oftentimes anything that can disrupt people's psyche of like, I had already told myself a story of what was going to be true and I was forced to now experiment with a new thing and the data actually disrupted my psyche. And not only did it disrupt my psyche, it gave me an outcome that actually met my interests and my needs it increases the probability for people to expand trying new things and trying new behaviors and habits. Right. So they're, they're predicting that something, you know, they can't change or they can't do this thing. And you're saying, yes. okay, let's, let's do, try it and see if it works. And then when it does, that leads to more uptake on or more, more, more yes. a- feeling of agency, I guess. What about their perspectives towards others? Like how much of the work that you do is mindset towards others work? And I know relationships is a huge part of what the Alori Network focuses on. And, and is that part of the relationship work that you do? 
Absolutely. So because our viewpoint is that relationships are the unit of analysis of mm-hmm. change, we do focus on the I because we believe that before you can focus on the we, you have to consistently be asking like a self-awareness of your own leadership, a self-awareness of your contribution when there are things that grow, go well. How, what's the analysis of what's causing it to go well? How are you contributing to that? And when the breakdowns, what role are you contributing to a pattern that's causing the breakdown to continue to happen? So certainly we're thinking about like, how can we mirror what's happening here? And quite honestly, how do we experiment with relationships? Because people often say like, I already know that person is not mm-hmm. going to respond well to that. I already know they're going to do X. And the question that we will often ask is, how do you know that? Is it because they told you if you tried that technique? And they will, and usually the response is based off a schema they have a relationship experience that makes them assume something to be true. And that's usually never the case. Usually when there are breakdowns, everyone, there's something that everyone is seeing as part of the breakdown, meaning like, I'm assuming you don't value me. Mm-hmm. And because you don't value me, I am doing a set of actions. And the other person has usually oftentimes a mirror experience that they're assuming of the other person and where you can break those things down and introduce, quite honestly, vulnerability into the equation, that opens up relationships. When you can um, have people explore, if you're frustrated and if you're annoyed, it's actually because you care. What you're talking about is the activity, when in reality, what we should be talking about is the fact that the response is based off your feelings. And feelings is a hard thing because as human beings, we don't like talking about feelings. Oftentimes, if you even ask people how they're feeling, they'll tell you about like the job, the work, what happened today. Um, not necessarily what's going on with them. And so we get really in touch, not because we want to be touchy-feely, but because being in touch with what's going on with us might help us understand then how we're responding and reacting in a certain way and might then help us explore what about our relationship got us to this place. When you're coaching someone, they're getting vulnerable with you in that way and with themselves, it sounds like. Um, do you then encourage them as well to to have some similar kind of um, vulnerability with their people? Absolutely. Oftentimes relationships, when there's a breakdown, the conversation is about right and wrong and blame and shame. And so people come into the conversation, like, I got feedback for you. Let me tell you what you did. Mm -hmm. And that when you're in a relationship dynamic, human nature, if you came and said that to me, Ryan, it's like, my defenses are up. It's like, well, I got feedback for you too, then. Let me tell you why, it's like why that happened. And so then what you're, everybody's basically digging their heels in and they're anchoring. And what we're trying to do is like, Let's just assume that everybody contributed to the breakdown. And if we can assume that, then we can turn from a posture not of blame and shame or right and wrong thinking. We can turn it to a posture of learning. Like, what can we learn from this so that we can strengthen our relationship and do better the next time? Because we know that we, like somehow there was some type of thing that contributed to it that neither one of us want and desire. So if we can figure that out, then we can try again. And so oftentimes when people are having a situation, instead of going in in terms of I have feedback, it's like... Something happened today, Ryan. Mm-hmm. And I thought like, if you are open to it, I'd love to explore with you, like how we might've both contributed to that, what we can learn about ourselves. We can learn about our relationship. Um, I want to share with you a little bit about like what I see as my contribution to the breakdown. See if you see it differently, what, what you see about that changes and shifts immediately the dynamic that it's not that I'm coming to attack you or to tell you that you're wrong. It doesn't necessarily mean that there's not culpability and that there's not reflection of things that have happened. But it makes it easier for me not to have to give you feedback, but for you to say, hey, Susan, like, yeah, I was thinking about it, too. I probably could have also done X, Y and Z. 
it changes the dynamic and it, it, it becomes a reflective conversation, not a conversation about judgment. Uh, you mentioned the connection between that and how a good teacher works with their students as well. The, re- the connection between the importance of relationship building in the classroom. And it strikes me that a usually more experienced teacher or just a teacher who's good at relationships does that as well, right? Like admits when they were wrong, yes. for instance, um, with their kids or um, tries to get on the, you know, make sure that the students know, look, we're on the same side here. We're trying to, to, to do the same thing and not get into this. I mean, obviously, if a student does something wrong, you need to give them that feedback, but doing it in a way that is growth oriented rather than, like you said, invoking shame or anything like that mm-hmm. uh, is, is critical. I, I'm curious with the Alori Network, right? So you left Teach for America uh, how many years ago now? Gosh, it would have been, I'm going to lose track of time. I want to say 2020, 2021, okay. somewhere around there. So, so coming out of the pandemic yep. and started the Alori Network, first of all, where does the name come from? Yeah, so um, I'm Nigerian. Um, Alori is a Yoruba term that stands for leader. And because we have a theory of, of action as both around relationships and because we believe in the, the possibility that everyone has something meaningful and a superpower to contribute to doing great things, we center on leadership and that superpower as the way the way forward. So your focus is leadership development. You work with leaders directly, individual executives. You also work with teams, it sounds like. When a company or a nonprofit comes to you, um, why are they coming to you rather than somebody else who offers those services? Yeah, absolutely. I would say um, a few things. One, what differentiates us as a, as a company is we believe that we have a, what I would say, a trifecta of things that are going on. One, we are a team who obsesses about the questions, what do the greatest teams and leaders do differently that sets them apart? And as a result of such, um, we are coming with insights, pattern recognition that we believe is universal across sectors. And not only are we coming with the insights, everyone on our team has had to lead at the level and model the type of behavior that we are suggesting to other people in terms of those insights. So we have proximity. The second thing I would say is, um, as I shared with you, we are big in terms of tools. So we know people need like actual tools. They have to like do something tomorrow. And at the same time, we know that actions are only sustainable if beliefs and behaviors and the root causality has been explored. And so we examine both things together. And then I would say the last thing is that we thread um, diversity, equity, inclusiveness, because we don't think that you can exchange leadership that those things are like very much interconnected, diversity of the workforce, how people do share work together, cultures, backgrounds, they all come together. Um, and so we talk about how can we put differences to work for some shared interests. And so the combination of those things in a relational dynamic um, has people come to us because we're trying to examine the insights and we're trying to also examine behaviors. So you'll very rarely um, see our team and coaches only doing one-on-one work. We want to do one-on-one work because we want you to have the space to explore you, yourself, your awareness, root causality. Then we want to see you in action. We want the same because oftentimes people can only tell you what they're doing through their lens, through their biases. And so we want to see you in action in relation to other people so that we can help examine what you say versus what you do and also help you reflect on how your contributions are at play. And you mentioned the frameworks. Are these frameworks that you've developed in-house or, or ones that you got from somewhere else? A combination of both. Um, and so we have the great um, gift and 
of having been trained by many other coaches, one of which my coach, Diana, Diana McLean-Smith from the Action Smith Design Network. Um, a lot of what I have learned over the many years across sectors comes from work that I have done with her. And um, we've also developed our own based on our own insights and work in terms of what we see, um, because we just don't believe there's a lot of frameworks and tools out there that really consider leadership and equity together. Um, and so we've like come to develop those in terms of relationships, culture transformation, organizations and companies going through change. Um, and so some of those frameworks are ones that are our own in-house development that we've now spread to the world. You've mentioned diversity, equity, and inclusion. And, and I know the work you do is all centered through an equity lens. And I'm wondering, not at all hard for me to imagine nonprofits being legitimately committed to equity. And I'm sure some companies are too, but I know you work across sectors. What have you seen on that front? Both how committed are companies actually right now, if you don't mind answering that, and and why should they be if they're if they're not? The first thing that is good to know about us is that we only work with clients who have shared values. And so I would say the companies we work with, they do have a commitment to it. Now there may be on a different, like everyone's on a spectrum in terms of understanding, belief, but not knowing how to execute on it needing mirror holding and accountability and support. So um, I would say there, there, are, there are definitely companies across sectors who have a desire, whereas like, I do believe that there is a way to make money, to be innovative and do so in a way that is thoughtful and equitable and considers inclusivity and belongingness. Um, but we don't know how to do it or we're doing some things, but we don't think it's enough. So I would certainly say that um, there are certainly been companies and organizations that have reached out to us who just haven't been a great fit for us. Um, and that may be because we believe that th what they're looking for is tactics in terms of like we checked the box, we did the thing um, and that is not what we subscribe to. And we're OK with that. It's like we're not the, the right organization and firm. You asked the second question. You have to re remind me in terms of DEI. Basically, why should if if you're a let's take this sort of cynical view of the not of the for profit world at least, um, but this could apply to many nonprofits as well. You've got a bottom line, and the how you do on most of your equity measures very often, if ever, right? Mm -hmm. And so, why should a company care about it? You know. I mean, obviously, there are moral reasons to care, but that's depending on the person having those. Absolutely. But those there are also economic themselves. reasons. Right. So speak to that a little bit. Yeah. There are statistics that talk about that. Like when you have diversity of perspective and opinion, you get to better ideas. People are able to challenge each other. People are able to say, who are the, who's the audience and who's our customers and our clients and what are their, their needs? And do we have the right set of people at the table who even understand that perspective to ensure that what we're offering to them is something that they have interest in? And so there is something about the when you see the beauty in, of um, diversity at its best, you see the blending of brains coming together, quite honestly, to produce and to build and to create something bigger than e any person individually could have done on their own. And so it, to me, it's both a moral factor, but even if that is not the thing that drives you from a value perspective, economically, there's so many examples out in the world of where you have that happening and done productively, not because you're supposed to do it or some someone said that it's like a, a thing you have to do in order to be good in the world, but because you actually believe um, that it can produce something um, great in terms of the interest that you have. What comes on the other side of it is quite honestly, is boldness. 
And so what does that look like in practice? Like when you're working with an organization to help them either assess what they're doing through an equity lens or apply the lessons of coaching and, and transformation that, that you guys work on with them, what, what does that look like specifically? Yeah. So there are a couple of things that you would see us doing um, and it would become well before we did any type of assessment, which is what is the degree? Like p- people often say, like, we don't have time for relationships. And I'm like, you do have time for relationships. Relationships are like are not formed in moments. Relationships are formed in every encounter. Sometimes that's social relationships. Like, let's go out to have dinner. Sometimes that's work relationships. We got to work on this thing together. So um, you have time for relationships because relationships are like the unit of how all things get done, whether you see it that way or not. And so we spend time actually talking about like, what are the different ways in which relationships are formed? And is there intentionality about how that's happening? Is there intentionality about the ways in which people are socially engaging? So just get to know each other families, children, where people feel comfortable, of course, sharing, but like just knowing like people's history, because what, what people, how people have um, come into the world impacts what they do, how they see the world, what they reject, uh, why they, why, why we're all complex beings. And the more we like share about those aspects of us, they carry into our lives, into our work. Um, and so like we can empathize with each other. We can understand each other in different types of ways. We can see correlations. So that's the first thing is that we talk about like, what are the spaces where people just get to know each other as human beings and as people? H- has that gotten harder in the um, remote world? It has gotten very, it's much harder um, because people are like, I, like, I'm checking in to do what I need to do. I'm, I'm certainly checking out to because I have other things to do or I'm in a virtual setting. So I'm trying to multitask, quite honestly. People are more productive, certainly, and can be just as efficient. Um, but what I would say is it's also not impossible to do that. So like we even talk about like in, in virtual settings, are you doing things where it's like as part of your meeting agendas being like, OK, like during one of our commercial breaks, Susan and Ryan, you all are going to be paired up for 15 minute commercial break. And your job is just to check in on each other. What's going on? How's the work going? How are we doing work together? What's good about how, we, how we're doing shared work, our, like our outcomes? People underestimate the power of that. Every time we do things like that, even in virtual settings, the first thing people come because we always come back and we say, let's reflect on the the you know walk and talks that you just did. What come, came of that? People, are, it's ne- it never fails. One hundred percent of the time, people will say, "I forgot how important." Like I miss talking to such and such, or totally. I like, never collide with them anymore. Like it was so nice to like reconnect. Like we talked about two things we should be doing together. We're going to get that on the calendar. So all of a sudden a check-in for 10, 15 minutes of a commercial break of like, okay, everybody get up, do a walk and talk with a friend or a colleague has now turned into, wow, I feel seen. I feel heard. I feel connected again because human beings are meant to be connected to one another. And got and, and what came of that? Like a collaboration opportunity that, likely would not have happened otherwise. Yeah, that makes sense. And so I think you were about to describe what happens after, like in addition to those um, on, on the relationships front, like what else do you recommend? And specifically, like where is the work either harder or like what kind of things do we need to pay attention to when we are for forging those relationships across differences? Um, clearly, we'll do the type of social and also like let's stay connected with one another. We also do what we call instead of assessment discovery, uh, where we, you know, will engage with team members and ask them a series of questions about what their hopefulness is, 
what they see as challenging, whether it be about the organization or about the relationships that exist in the organization, what they see as the barriers, what they would do differently. That usually gives us a set of data that we play back to those very same people because people are usually identifying what they hope to be true and what's already working that they can build from. So I would say that's that's the second thing is that oftentimes when you're in the day to day monotony, it's hard to zoom out and see beyond yourself. But when you can have someone paint the mirror back of the very things that you all said, that creates a different level of conversation around like, okay, there's some things we're doing really well and we've gotten into a rut. How can we be more deliberate and thoughtful? I would say where it gets hardest in terms of relationships, we do a thing, we call it the bingo board. Um, So you have to check out um, engaging with us to understand what that means. Um, But we have uh, an exercise that we take people through where they end up ha- like, you know, has basically all the names of the people who are on a specific team. And we ask a series of questions about relationships, um, some of them about the strength of the relationship. And we always give caveats. We're like, so when we talk about relationships, we're not talking about like, yeah, I know that person. You're talking to them yesterday. It's like they would say in return that they really understand your interests. They know who you are. They understand like what makes you tick. You feel comfortable and safe with them to like engage on work. You do share things like very strongly together. All of a sudden you see the body language change. People are like, oh, I don't know if they would, I, I, I don't know. I don't know if I would count it. I'm like, and if you don't know, the answer is no. Do not check the box because you know when you have strength or rest. So we do a series of questions and that's where it gets difficult because once we do that, we then have people zoom out and we say, take a look at your bingo board. What do you notice in terms of who you have strength of relationship? Is it a certain archetype or prototype of who you've, invested time in. Like it's actually people who work in a certain type of way or in a certain type of department. What do you make of that? Is that is that what's going to actually help you reach the outcomes and the goals that you have? That becomes hard for people because the next task that we have them do is we usually give a date and we say by the end of X date, your job is anyone who doesn't have, you know, we have like cues for like bingo board. Anybody who doesn't have this this visual you have to go and have a conversation with them. And so I find that it gets, it, those conversations can quite honestly both be hard, but transformative. I will also say it can get hard where there's competing agendas, where people have strong opinions about what right and wrong is or what should happen. And they are doing the best that they know how to do, but like really struggle to negotiate productively, working through understanding, listening, hearing, seeing other people's perspectives um, versus trying to defend their own. Yeah. And so what what do you do in that situation? So presumably you tell if you're coaching the person individually, you tell them to have that conversation. But w- what does the follow up look like or what is the setup and then the follow up look like? I would say that the, the setup really is both starting with the what is the desired mm-hmm. outcome of the conversation that you would want to have. And people oftentimes don't start with that. It's like, what what is success in this conversation? And like the reason we ask that question, because understanding is is success winning. Mm -hmm. Right. Like I got my way or is success. I want to get to a better outcome where we could do shared work better together. Or like there's a product that are deliverable or this big thing that we're trying to go after. Like I want that. That is the thing. And oftentimes people get confused about what success is. And so it's like, we have them start there and anchor and like, okay, if success is actually this thing that is bigger than you, and it's the doing this in a way where everyone leaves whole, doing something that's going to allow you all to like actually reach this great impact or to have this bold outcome, this great deliverable, then let's talk about what your starting point would be in order to do that. 
And the starting point certainly is not trying to compel someone about why your way is the right way. Because there's a theory that says like, if you want to change someone, the way to changing someone is actually by a better understanding their interests and needs. That when people's interests and needs are met, they're more open to like being, being um, considering a different alternative in a different way. And so we talk a lot about the, you're going to go in actually legitimately being curious because if you, you believe that your colleague is doing the best that they know how to do and that they don't wake up every day trying to make your life miserable, then quite honestly, what likely is going on is they see something that you don't see. And that's why they also feel so strongly. And so they may have a different data set than you are. So go in with a, a level of like, I'm actually coming in because I you said X and you feel so strongly about going right. And I would have said we should turn left, but you keep saying go all right. So I'm going to stop and I'm going to like, my job is to figure out why you feel so strongly about right. So I'm going to ask a lot of questions. I want to better understand what data are you seeing? Like help me understand all the information that's driving you to that conclusion. What's behind that? Why do you care about those things? And so it's like really, and like, they're not like asking just because I want to ask just so now I can like figure out how to use all the information to compel you about my way. It's like, I'm asking because if I better understand your interests, either one of two things usually is at play. People are not as far apart as they think they are. So relationships is one of the major focuses of your of your organization, obviously. And th- but y- you also have um, change management, or I-, I don't know exactly how you describe it. Yep. And I know you were Leading the chief change, yeah. transformation officer at Teach for <laughs> America. So um, knowing a bit about that organization, I know they've gone through a lot of major changes before, as has ours, from as we've grown and then as we've centralized more and try to decide Mm -hmm. what to centralize and what not to. And that comes with a ton of change management, some of which we've done well, some of which we haven't done well. I'm curious what that process looks like for you and when you're working with a company. I mean, our first thing is that we often talk about how can we reframe change? Because sometimes change can be equated to it's synonymous with bad, wrong, buckle up (laughs) versus evolution where are we headed? What's good for the next phase of where we need to be? And oftentimes human beings, especially adults, talk about wanting change until change happens to them and things are no longer stable. So we talk about, first of all, how do we reframe change so that like the we can train our bodies and our muscles to be more open to the fact that like this is this is the way in which life happens. So that's I would say the first thing. And and who is the subject in that? Like who who's reframing change? Because in my experience, and I think you said a version of this, like it's not the people who are making yes. the change. It's uh, those who are subject to it and either had input, but not as much as they'd like, or just didn't have the decision themselves or maybe no input. And um, do you work with the leadership team on how to change that mindset towards change throughout the organization? Or is that just, yes. that's what the, le- the mindset the leadership team needs? I would actually say, so I would say that mindset shift is not just for the people who are like having that change, like being impacted by the change. I would say it's for the leadership too, because sometimes mm-hmm. leaders can get into their heads around like, okay, with this big change thing going on, like this is how people are going to re- respond or they're not themselves being as bold. It's like, well, if we do this, this is how it's going to impact. And not, it's not to say that it's not worthy of thinking about how people are impacted by the change mm-hmm. and the emotions that may or may not come from that, that that's strategy and that's thoughtfulness. And sometimes that can be limiting as well. And so the reframing change is actually at all levels. It just looks different at the senior level in terms of like, what's the narrative of where you're going and why you're going there that helps people see truth and hope. And for the team members, it's the who are directly impacted is 
what can I, like what's the opportunity that's in there? Whether the change impacts me in a way that I like would not want or does more productively and positively, it's more aligned to like what what I would have hoped for. Okay, so versus shifting that mindset, and then do you take them through a process? And I know this is one of the places where I believe it was change management, where I have some exposure to the work that you guys do um, through um, an experience that the, your team led us through in um, KIPP. And I found it a really fascinating and helpful um, sort of set of frameworks. And like you had the right side of the brain and the left side of the brain um, and all that. Um, speak a little bit about like, where those frameworks came from and then how do you use those with organizations? Um, the first thing I would say is like a lot of the things are around learning, right? Like when I talked about Diana, that she's in a school of of experts like Peter Sangi, et cetera, who talk about like just learning and how the brains work and how like human beings lead. Um, so a lot of that is building off the great work that they have done. Um, but some of it is also just w- what we consider our pattern recognition is now we've worked with um, executives and their teams across sectors um, in terms of like, what what do you see with human beings where change happens at different altitudes? Everything from, hmm. are people actually even clear on where you've been, what you've learned, what has worked, what hasn't worked? What's happening in terms of external and internal market dynamics and what, how that leads you to the trying to be relevant, trying to be innovative, trying to be on the, like a, a thought leader in this next era. Um, oftentimes leaders believe they've been clear and it's clear to them, but to no one else. And so we do a ton of work around the tell us the story of the change. And oftentimes they're like, oh, like, I'm not sure if you'll understand it. I'm like, well, if I can't understand it, I feel like I'm a smart person. And so it needs to be a, a story that can be told that the lame, it's like layman enough that the average person, whether they're in or outside of your organization could pick up. And so we do a lot of, quite honestly, with the leadership team, getting them clear on, well, what's the story of change and making it so it can be accessible to people. And so that it can balance, quite honestly, the truth of like, yeah, this part about it is really hard and we got to look into ourselves in the mirror. It's a part of what the world is saying is happening right now and the hopefulness of the possibility. The curse of knowledge, as I think was in the uh, concept in the book Made to Stick mm-hmm. by the Heath brothers, this notion that, is, especially like for someone like me who's been in, in the leader of our organization for 20 years, there are so many things that I forget that I, that I forget that I know that other people don't know, or I know them and I forget that other people don't know them or, or people who didn't join us, you know, 20 or 10 or even two years ago. And it sounds like you're very focused on creating that story of where we've, where we've been on this, um, on this particular change journey, or maybe, maybe other ones as well. When you're, one of the challenges with change can be, um, at least in the kind of change that we've seen where, Oftentimes, like we 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 went from basically startup stage where everyone was 25 years old, just kind of doing as well as we could. No one was an expert in anything. To now the point where we have more things that are standard across the organization. We're a much bigger organization, and um, where we've gotten resistance before is basically where you're taking away people's autonomy on something. And and the way we kind of look at it and and have experienced it at least is even if people are saying we all want to have the same curriculum. There's some portion of those of the people who are saying that who only want that if it's the exact curriculum they would have chosen. <laughs> and um, and obviously, like that's just one example of many that that could apply to that. Um, 
how do you work through that kind of thing? So some of it's change mindset, but but once the change is starting to take hold and people then are pushing back or resisting, how do you work with leadership teams on that? We find teams do a lot of communication. So I'm going to just use that example, like right curriculum. We're going to like, we're going to go in this direction and people, you have a subset of people who are upset about it. They said they wrote, they were good with the change, but it wasn't the change that they wanted. And so they start to push back on it. And so you have leadership who's communicating. And to us, we say communication is not enough. You actually need communication and engagement. You need to be able to tell your teams like, yep, I get it. I heard you. We are going to do it this way for this reason. However, I want us to one, stay in conversation about it. Let's engage on like what we're learning as like, let's make a commitment to try it with fidelity and with integrity, like to go this direction. And like, let's find, let's, let's live with fidelity actually be in learning. What are we learning about? It's what's working, what's not working. And not because we're going to like change our minds, but because we're going to make it the best that we can. And if it's not serving whatever the, the need or the interest, then of course, we're always going to be prepared to use information and data to revisit is that the right path that we should be on? Um, but th- like that, but there's clarity enough to know where we're going and engagement so people know how we're going to learn along the way. And so oftentimes I see executives will name versions of that where they communicate out, but they, one, don't create an engagement cycle. And certainly, two, they name that, like, we'll talk about how it's going, but they don't, literally don't put things on the calendar. So, like, when I see that, I'll say executive. No, literally. What, when are you going to talk about it? Is it once a month? Is it quarterly? And they're like, well, I think we need enough frequency to, like, know that, like, to, to have a say. I'm like, great. Is it every other month? They're like, yeah. I'm like, great. Put something on the calendar. Because guess what? Business is going to happen. Life is going to happen. And if people see a real commitment that you have to like, we made a decision, we're sticking to that decision and we're going to learn along the way and that you actually live and lead into that, they're going to be more apt to be open to like, okay, I didn't get my way. I got to move on. I got to agree to like disagree and commit. Um, And so that's, there's a variation of that that we do, which is both about process and also getting people to be able to like start to um, receive, let go and move forward. There's a different, another version that we do of that where we tell executives at some moment in time, if people are not aligned enough to say, I can be good with it to keep going forward. And it actually starts to create such dissonance for them. It begs the question of asking a question, is this still the right place for you? And that's not a bad thing. It's not a dig on the person. People deserve to like be joyful to lead the best life they can be, to give to the world. And so does the organization and company. Um, And so it's a a conversation about how do they best use their skills in a way where they can actually lead fully. How how much of your job, you mentioned sort of following up with the executive saying like, did you actually put that on your calendar? Mm -hmm. How much of your job or the job of your coaches, especially in that one-on-one coaching is basically holding leaders accountable? A lot of it. I mean, a lot, uh, I would say much of it is ref- is like reflective leadership. There's pat- like, pa- like people can't see patterns because oftentimes our CEOs, our presidents, they're bringing examples. This thing happened and I want to explore and get some help about how to think about it. What we can do is all of a sudden, Ryan, we've been in two sessions and you've brought me three different case examples. I can zoom you out and say, hey, Ryan, I know we've talked about these three different things and how, like now you've gotten some tools, we've examined what's behind it. But I see a trend, actually, and you haven't named that trend. And that trend is something about I'm, I'm making this up, right? Like you are really committed to your people. And because you're really committed to your people, 
there's oftentimes ways in which you're not making the types of the, the types of the um, strategic decisions that are necessary because you're privileging a person over that. And every single time it's messing you up. And so like we got to uncover what's making you feel nervous about making decisions that you believe are going to impact or hurt people um, because it's getting in the way of your leadership. Like that's a strength. That's actually the theme. And that's oftentimes not the, the piece that people give to us. And so I would say that's the so type holding of the mirror. Up. Yes, exactly. And right. that then does lead to accountability in terms of like, oh, what are we going to do about that? What are some things we can try? Great. And so we can offer the accountability to just simply say, you're going to do that. How did it go? Yep. You got homework in our coaching sessions. How long are your coaching engagements usually? It varies. So um, mostly because there are two things to know about our firm. Um, we do not um, box people in into timeframes. So you won't see us say, when you do an engagement with us, you're locked in for the next 12 months, the next 18 months. We just don't believe in that because we believe um, reflection, learning, coaching is the most vulnerable act you can have. And so if at any moment in time it's not working for someone, we think they shouldn't stay with us. Like, because we are also in a relationship where we're like doing shared work together. Um, and so our ask is like, if it's not working, let's like, let's close out where we are and then let's, let's move on. Um, so that's the first thing to know about us is that we don't have time commitments in that way. The second, um, and we've never had a problem with that. Um, so that's, that's the part that says like, boom, um, in terms of what we offer and what we do and what I think is our efficacy. The second thing I would say is our theory is that we all need coaches, period. And that's a lifelong thing. It's not a like up into a period of time and people can cat like what we call accordion. Like there may be different moments, like the pandemic, as you can imagine, every, like, you know, some of our clients are like, I need to talk to you literally like every other day, every week, like things are moving so rapidly. And during times of stability, it may not be as like, I need frequency, but maybe not the frequency of every day. And so like we are accordion to like what's going on as long as there's some level of frequency so that we know reflection is happening. But that our theory is like, it's a, it's, a, it's a forever lifelong thing. And that includes us. I have I still have my coach. My team members all have coaches. We just think it's a, it's a practice. Like coaching is actually the art and practice of leading. We've used coaches. Um, and, uh, I've had coaches in the past and, and as have a, a number of our other teammates. And it's, it's always surprising to me that when people say no to that or say they, they don't want that when offered, um, given, you know, the best athletes in the world all have coaches, no, no matter how good they are at their sport. And um, uh, the same, no doubt, applies to, to the work we do. Um, I, I noticed one of in the session that I was in with uh, that your team led, I noticed how one of the things that I experienced experience differently than than any other sort of coaching or, or um, consulting arrangement I've seen was the level of um, attention to how people are interacting. And so I think the way they did it in that session was, you know, we established norms up front. We sort of all, there were, I don't know, 30 people in a room. We all kind of agreed to these norms. And throughout the session, your team was very good at saying that was a good application of the norm or that was not, you were not observing the norm in that case. And it sounds kind of squishy going through norms and all that, but it had such a big impact on the way that conversation played out. And it, it was by far the best version of that conversation that we've ever had. And I think set us up well to have future conversations, you know, with or without support from uh, your team or an external team. Although it does strike me that having someone there just to call out when it's working and when it's not 
is super valuable. Um, is and I, I wonder, and, and I, I wonder if you even know where this comes from. But it, they, you said earlier that your people have all been operators, right? Um, on some level, they've been executives, leaders, managers, and it struck me that of they were acting much more like, with all due respect to consultants writ large, they were acting much more like a manager would act or a leader would act, even though they were not, in fact, leading the discussion. And is that, I assume that's something you guys work on a lot or and, and train to some degree because they did it in such a sort of uniform way. But um, how much of that is coming from that kind of background that you focused on with them and, and how much of that is is kind of what you just what you instill in your whole organization? Yeah, it's a it's a what we instill. Mm. So hopefully what it felt like was you could see a manager doing that because what we're trying to do is model the type of things yes. we all should be doing for one another. Um, but what we're really trying to do is just have you reflect. Because our belief system is that when people are self-aware of what they're like, we, we all do things a mile a minute because we're like, we're moving, we're moving, we're moving. Hello, Ryan, got to do this thing. Transactional, Ryan, I got a question for you, Ryan. And the minute that like you slow down to just actually say, okay, like, what did I do? How did that feel? Like, it doesn't take that long. The, yourself, the more self-aware you are, the more in tuned you are to like, how do I want to be? Okay, I'm about to go into this next conversation. What's the purpose of the conversation? What do I want to get out of it? How do I want to show up as a leader? All, you start to train your brain to do that. You increase the probability of a better outcome. And so more or less the norming and the observing and the stopping is really training the brain to say, don't get so busy because people are always like, we don't have time for that. That's the number one thing I hear from CEOs and presidents. I don't have time, Susan, to be doing all this learning and reflection stuff. And my response to them is, well, quite honestly, you're spending a lot more time because you're not doing it. Because you're having to consistently go back and deal with breakdowns and company politics in terms of this person is in it and people are bubbling things up to you or the outcomes that you're getting are not as strong because teams are not integrating with each other because they, like it's all about the internal politics versus all the external things that you're trying to do and like went on. Um, and the minute that clicks for people who are saying like, yeah, like, let me give you this one example of what happened in your company and organization. How many hours did you spend on that because of all of the, the, the navigating the internal versus if you would have just from the beginning created an atmosphere of self-awareness, people could have corrected much more quickly and tried again. That's, that's our experimentation. Reflect what just happened. That was great. You did that self-awareness. Ooh, your intention was to do X, Y, and Z. Let me show you why that didn't meet the norm. This is what it would look like. Do it again. Try it again. And you start to build the muscle of doing that. You move quickly. You move quickly. And quite honestly, not only do you move more quickly, people are more joyful at work as a result of such relationships are stronger because as human beings, we're going to step on each other's toes. Yeah, it was very, first of all, we we got all those benefits just within that meeting that you're talking about. Like it was, it was more productive. We got farther in the conversation. We absolutely built some skills around navigating the kinds of conversations we were in that we didn't previously have the skills around and and it did reduce the sort of politicking i don't know if that's the right word but the the, the level of kind of friction and and uh sort of post meeting conflict <laughs> that right. happened the talks yeah <laughs> right and um and yeah it's, it was very very clear to me how that approach a was different than anything i'd seen before and and B was uh, super productive. Wh what is your vision for where the Alori Network goes um, from here? Um, one, um, we want to impact 
many more people. Um, and so we are in the practice right now of getting out in the world, our frameworks and our insights and generating even more of them. So more people have access through a platform where they can self-guide themselves, uh, where they can have coaching in a different type of way, where it's like ask a coach anything um, through AI materials and things like that. And so we are um, out in universities and panels on podcasts talking about what we do, how we do it and sharing our insights because we just think everyone deserves to have that type of work because we believe the things that we're teaching people at work actually are transferable at home too. And so I would say that's one of our very first things that we're trying to do is just like get out in the world a lot more. And the platform is what I would say is the second thing is make it much more accessible so that you don't have to have my team with you all the time, um, that there are other ways in which you can actually get the same access and learnings. It's funny. I asked my wife, what is the, the right side of the paper? The right-hand column and the left-hand <laughs> right column. column. Exactly. The uh, thing that she's thinking but for, for our, our listeners who don't know what that means, one of your frameworks is the right-hand column, the left-hand column. One of them is a column that you say, but the other one is a column that you're thinking but not saying. Am I getting that right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, that's right. That's right. And yeah, it works in relationships too, as it turns out. So Susan... Where can people find you if they want to learn more or engage with your organization? Ping me on LinkedIn. Shoot me an email at sasiambi at network.com And we are eager. We're referral-based right now on purpose because we're all about our values. Um, but we are from a strategy perspective, um, considering whether we open it up for people who have shared values and they want us to consider whether we do. Because it's all a consider. Because we believe in relationships, um, we date our clients. Um, to make sure that like, do we want to continue dating each other? Um, because the work that we do is intimate, is vulnerable. And at the Allure Network, we're all about, um, again, possibility. And so we're about winning and about doing the thing that's going to be bold. And so we want to be on the same side when we do that. So reach out to us if that is the, the, the nature of what you're about. Well, thank you very much. It's been great having you on. Thanks, Ryan. I appreciate you. Sweat the Technique is a production of the Branch Media Podcast Network. You could follow all of the Branch's podcasts at, at The Branch Media on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And you could check out our website at thebranchmedia.org. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review, give us a five-star rating, and subscribe to the show so that you can join us every Wednesday for more Sweat the Technique.